Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for details. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights on a Wednesday night. We have a fun-packed show tonight. I hope you will stick around and join the show. Well, it's the start of the summer holidays and kids are upstairs and they are driving me mad. How many times I've been up, how many times I've pressed record and said, had to stop the recording of the show and say, now listen, shut up, I'm recording. And I can still hear them jumping about. They've got the Superman costumes on and it's driving me mad. So if I can get through this oral delights, it will be fantastic. Help us out here. So today we have a a little bit of an unusual show, unusual in the way that there is a story by my good self in, yes, oh dearie me. It's for the reason that I've got a little audio collection out and it will be in the shop now called Jumping Into Possibilities and this is a story on there so please look out for that and yes I will have send in your emails don't worry I'll not be kind of using this as a bandwagon to push my stories anymore it'll be a one-off special we've also got science news by our good friend Jim Campanella another installment from Jim and get this main fiction by Kevin J Anderson wow how cool is that so we will start off with some poetry No Ruined Lunar City by Greg Beatty There is no ruined lunar city, no airless Machu Picchu on the moon. No spires rise in leaping Susian whimsy enabled by the one-sixth G. There are no domes cracked by random meteorites, leaving homes below exposed, dead and full of surprised dead. There are no teddy bears, worn threadbare by loony hands, and eyes cracked by extreme days and nights. There are no pools of orange tang swirled with moon dust, homage spiraling with artistry. There are no empty spacesuits, their linings dry and cracked from decades without air. No, there are no lost cities on the moon, with squares that recall Topeka, Vladivostok, Quito, or Rome and cities that run from crater to mare, only to stand empty because men have moved on. But there will be. There you go, Greg. Thank you very much for that. That was much appreciated. And Julie Davis. Julie, over there at Forgotten Classics, 
Julie is in right in the middle now of narrating a David Brin massive story. So keep up the good work, Julie, and we will see you soon on that. So we get to the flash fiction by my good self, yes. I'll give you a little bit of kind of history of myself writing, if I can kind of remember. I got the bug when I kind of was really deep into kind of reading and everything like that. And I thought, I'll have a little tinkle at that. And this actual story was probably, out of all of them I kind of tackled, was one of the easiest to write for some reason. And, you know, it's you can tell which kind of author I just admired at the time. You know, it's, it's a Ray Bradbury kind of knockoff. <laughs> but it's, you know, I, lucky enough, I got it in, I can't even remember. Dreams and Nightscapes magazine i can't remember which magazine it is but it was somewhere probably around 1994 96 maybe when i started scribbling this particular one and i was you know it was one of those stories where i think i might have asked this for a couple of writers you know it just came there was no messing about with it it just first second draft and then that was it and it was tucked away and was it was done so Please send in emails. Like you say, I'm never going to go back to writing. So you can say, Tony, you need to actually do this. You need to actually do that to kind of, you know, improve your quality and improve your style. That ain't going to happen. <laughs> Not on God's green earth. Am I going to go back and touch any more writing? Oh, blood, sweat and tears, to be quite honest, when I did it. But anyways, I hope you enjoy it and I hope you all let us know about it. The Switch by Tony C. Smith It was one of those days when you made a wish that summer would last forever. A day when you could keep your shirt off your back from sun up until sundown. A day when clouds felt threatened and would hide in faraway skies. That was the day when Ricky Rawlings found the switch. I found a switch, Mr. Romy, down on old Highway 9. What switch, you say? And what kind of switch would you be talking about, Ricky? Nathan Romy eased himself from a rocking chair with all the care and respect his 83-year-old body deserved. I don't know, sir. I never flicked it. What are you doing on old Highway 9? You be crossing that new express freeway? I ran, Mr. Romy. I ran across those eight lanes quicker than a bullet from Sheriff Howler's gun, quicker than Pa's belt when he's lashing us kids. And you say you didn't flick it? No, sir. Came straight back. Thought I'd tell you first, Mr. Romy, seeing as you're the oldest in town. Ricky reached out a grubby hand, the same color as his bare feet. You want to see, Mr. Romy? You want to come see the switch? Romy chuckled. I haven't been further than the end of town since they abandoned Highway 9 for that new freeway. His voice eased into its gentle rhythm. I ain't seen much, that's for sure, since they came with their steamrollers and shovels. I ain't seen old Hank since... Why, he must be reaching 90 now. He lapsed into forgotten times. Or my Ella? Romy's eyes held a vision which long ago had passed away and died. His voice trickled to a whisper. No, sir. I ain't seen much since that road came by. Mr. Romy, you look sad. I ain't upset you. Romy's laugh returned like the sun rising on a new day. Don't you know, boy, you can't upset us old folk. We've seen so much upset through our lives, the Lord thinks we had enough. Will you come, Mr. Romy? 
Romy pulled himself straight and his bones eased into place for one final walk. I don't see nothing spoiling. They walked down the center of the dust-covered road. Romy's hands, arthritic and twisted, rested on Ricky's shoulder. They walked past old Dodson's store with its pots and pans and licorice sweets. Further down, past Millie's diner where each December Millie cooked Christmas pudding that just about everyone from miles around came to try. On to the outskirts, past Walt's farm, where Romy worked boy and man for old Walt Sr. They walked in time, their strides matching, one with plenty of time, the others running short, and they walked like the friends they were. You ever been in love, Ricky? I don't know. I love my ma and pa. I have, said Romy, his voice as delicate as his frame. I loved and lost long ago, and was too stubborn to cross a road to say sorry. What's it like to lose love, Mr. Romy? Once you find it, Ricky, real, true love, you gotta hold it tight in your hand and never let it go. Never open your hand, because once you do, you're never gonna get that same love back. You might catch love again, but it's not the same one you had. That's gone, and it won't never come back. What would it feel like if your mom and pa just up and left you and never came back? How would you feel if that nice, warm sun up there went down one day and never rose back? I would cry and cry until they all came back. Well, that's what it would feel like. But see, it's first love, and it never comes back. Then I don't want it. I never want to feel like that. Romy's hands ruffled Ricky's hair. But that's just it. You can't go out and find it. It has to find you. And it will, Ricky. Be sure of that. First love will find you no matter where you are. They crossed Dukes and River and up towards the old Highway 9. They could hear but not see the groaning noise that came from the new freeway, the world in the 21st century. We just got across that new road, Mr. Romy, and we'll be there, Ricky said, his arm pointing like a weather vane. Just up over this hill, cross the freeway, then I'll show you the switch. Romy sat down in the dry, warm dirt. I could do with a nice, cool lemonade from Millie's right now. Yes, sir, that's what I could have to stop this heat laying on my back and throat. He wiped his shirt sleeve across his brow. Think I'll finish the journey without these, he said, kicking off his boots. He wiggled his toes in the stilted air. There, that's what I needed. Now I'm ready to see this switch of yours, Ricky. The noise of the freeway increased with every step they took. It began to smother all other sounds, the cricket chirps and the bird squawks. It sank deep within their heads until it felt like it always had been there. They felt its throb through their bare feet. That's the road, Mr. Romy. Feels alive, don't it? Like a living, breathing animal. That's no animal I know, Ricky. My feet tell me it's a slippery, coiling monster from somewhere and going nowhere. But it's just a road, said Ricky, with all the purest knowledge a child could have. A road that stretches from one side of the country to other. A road that carries people anywhere they want to go. But why do all these people want to go? We had everything right here before that road came. Why do people want to go? I don't know. We had it all here, Ricky, and now this rose took it all away. It's taken everything. It takes friends and families, and it never lets them come back. It takes love, any love, first and last, and no matter how hard you get a grip of everything, it's going to take it all. They reached the brow of the hill and saw the frothing snake of the freeway, coughing out fumes and pollution, Coiled from one side of the world to the other, never ending, never starting, 
just on and on in a heavy pounding of cars and lorries. Their feet stung as they mounted the verge and waited on its hot flank. Vehicles, hungry for mileage, gobbled up the road left and right. You ready? You have to be quick. When I say go, you run like you're chasing first love. A gap appeared and Ricky hollered, Go, Mr. Romy, go! They ran, hobbled, and stumbled across the road. Cars as big as houses and as fast as planes snapped at their heels. Trucks the size of towns roared past without care for an old man and a young boy. Dust scorched their throats and blinded their eyes. Rock chippings, like granite wasps, stung their legs. And still they ran on and on, across the road, across no man's land, not stopping until they reached the safety of old Highway 9. They stood panting like dogs, the sun on their backs. Rumi gazed at the deserted road for a bus or a car that would never come. I've been thinking, Mr. Romy, these two roads, one young, one old, running side by side, they're like you and me. But Romy never heard. He sat down on the old baked highway, staring out towards the new freeway. He turned and smiled at Ricky. I never thought I'd be sitting here on this old road again, looking out over there. He pointed to the new road. So, Ricky, his voice slow and labored, where's the switch that I've come to see? It's right here in the middle of the road, said Ricky, pointing to a broken cat's eye. That ain't no switch. It's for cars to see in the dark, said Romy, his eyes now glazed and his breathing shallow. No, look, Mr. Romy, said Ricky, lifting the protective cover. There's the switch. Look. Romy's eyes closed. He was tired, very tired, but he didn't care. He wasn't going very far on this road or any other road. His body now started to ease away the aches, glad to be back in its usual sitting position. Flick the switch then, Ricky. It's your switch. You found it. You flick it. Ricky eased his hand into the hole and flicked the switch. And the entire hissing, breathing freeway stopped, silent and dead. Cars, buses, trucks, they all stopped. Romy opened his eyes a final time before the one road he would be happy to travel on swept him away forever. His voice, fading, floated along Highway 9 with the warm summer flow of time. Whatever you do, Ricky, never flick that switch again. Flick it, and everything you hold dear will up and leave. That I can promise you. And there you go. <laughs> so, that's it. My wares are on the table. Just like to say a big thank you to Mer Lafferty for recording that. Links on the site to Mer's podcasts and websites. It was, Mer, thank you very much. And can I just say a big, big thank you to Skeet, who actually designed the artwork for Jumping Into Possibilities. Skeet, that artwork is amazing. Please do pop over to... Skeet's website, check out his artwork. In a few weeks' time, I'm going to get Skeet on the sofa and chat about the artwork he's done for me and the artwork he does for anybody else out there. So please do check that out. And, like, again, do check Skeet's website. Give him an email if you want some artwork doing. And don't forget, that is one of a collection of my stories. If you'd like to pop over to the Starship Sofa shop, 
$4.99. And there's a special on at the moment. If you buy the whole collection of the back episodes for $9.99, that's, I guess, I'm thinking now it's probably about 90 up there. You will get the book in there free as well. Don't worry, you can just, if you want, just you don't have to get the whole kit and caboodle. If you just want the book, that's in there as well. But if you want to do a special and get the, the, the whole lot up for a month where you buy the back shows. So there you go. Please let us know how you feel about that, if you like the story. If not, don't tell us how to write because I'm even going to listen. I'm just going to smile when I get the emails about that. So today's Oral Delights podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible has, get this, over 35,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com dot com slash sofa for your free audiobook and actually i was one of those ones who slipped over and got the free copy book by christine catherine rush that disappeared and also in there you can get frank herbert god emperor of june and we have kevin j anderson on the day his final Volume in the Sterling Conclusion to The Saga of the Seven Sons, The Ashes of the World, that is in there as well. The Dream and Void by Peter F. Hamilton, that's in there. Begin of a new trilogy. And Territory by Emma Bull. So, no reason not to pop over and check out audible.com. Don't forget, audiblepodcast.com slash sofa. Now we come to part of the show which is proving very popular amongst you listeners out there. It is Mr. Jim Campanella and his news on science. So Jim, what we got out there, sir? Greetings one and all. Oh, have I got a couple of great stories for you tonight. They're both related to the following sound clip. Steve Austin, astronaut, a man barely alive. We can rebuild him. We have the technology. We can make him better than he was. Better, stronger, faster. Well, anyone who grew up in the 1970s like me, or is addicted to cheesy old television shows, will recognize that immediately as being from The Six Million Dollar Man, a TV show which followed the adventures of OSI cyborg, ex-astronaut, secret agent, Colonel Steve Austin. Along with Michael Crichton's book and the movie Terminal Man, these were the first SF stories to bring the idea of the cyborg into the broad eye of the mainstream public. 
In the 1980s, the Japanese became obsessed with the idea, and a huge proportion of their SF is still madly focused on the physical and psychological effects of having both brain and body parts replaced. Probably the most famous example of that is Masamuna Shiro's Ghost in the Shell. Of course, the idea of a man with artificial parts replacing the original factory equipment obviously goes back much farther than that. Asimov and others covered it in the 1960s, and before that, stories from one of Tony's favorite authors, Alfred Bester, in The Stars of My Destination, covered the same ground. If you want to get really pedantic, probably the first actual SF story involving replacing body parts was, ta-da, yes, what we always come back to, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. After all, Frankenstein's monster was, after being rebuilt, although not quite as attractive as Steve Austin, stronger and faster than he was originally. So what is the point of my painfully inadequate SF history lesson on cyborgs? Well, recently there were two news stories that suggest that we are not far from an era when humans with prosthetics as sophisticated as Steve Austin's will walk among us, and that, at least according to the International Association of Athletics Federation, the IAAF, they already do. Oscar Pistorius is a world-class athlete, a 400-meter sprinter, who will be competing in the Olympics in August for South Africa. He is also a paraplegic with both his lower limbs, below his thighs, replaced by carbon fiber prosthetics that resemble nothing more than black-bladed, high-tech leaf springs from your car. His legs are called Cheetah Flexfoot Prosthetics, and they're made by an Icelandic company called Osur. After doing well at international races earlier in the year, Oscar did not get the honor of being allowed to compete, even though he qualified, until also winning a serious battle in May with the IAAF, and the International Olympic Committee involving his high-tech prosthetics. Oscar will not be the first paraplegic Olympic athlete, by the way. That honor goes to New Zealand's gold-medaling archer Neroli Fairhall, but Miss Fairhall was not running on artificial legs. She shot her bow from a sitting position. Also, she was not accused like Oscar of actually having an advantage over her opponents. Yes, you heard correctly. Double paraplegic Oscar was accused by the IAAF of having an advantage over his competitors. That is why they didn't want to let him compete. Now, we're not talking about Steve Austin electronically enhanced legs here that make Oscar superhuman. We are talking, to put it bluntly, high-tech peg legs attached to his stumps. So, what were the accusations of the IAAF? Well, it comes down to two points. Here is the first point as stated by the actors from The Six Million Dollar Man in this clip. He's not even breathing hard. Well, you see, his lungs are used to handling oxygen for the blood supply for two arms and two legs. Now they only have to take care of one. Look, it's impossible. Twenty years ago, so was a four-minute mile. The limits are here, Miss Manners. Here. That arm, those legs of his will do anything, absolutely anything, his mind tells him to. I think he's ready for us now. There you have it. Does Oscar have an advantage over his competitors because his blood is not being pumped to his legs? Is he using less energy in a 400-meter sprint than his competitors and thus have an advantage? By the way, take this from a former high school sprinter. The 400-meter is a bitch of a run, since it is all out. It's just like a 100-meter dash, but it's four times the distance. 
and your muscles are stressed both aerobically and anaerobically to make energy, like you can't imagine. To get a world-class sprint time on the 400 meter, well below 50 seconds, the world record holder, Michael Johnson, 43.18 seconds, your body has to be in perfect condition. Well, Oscar's body is obviously not perfect, and yet he is competitive. Is it because he's cheating with his prosthetics? Well, that's what the IAAF claimed. They conducted a two-day scientific study of Oscar's prosthetics, led by German professor Gerd Peter Brueggemann. Afterwards, they concluded that Oscar uses 25% less energy than average runners due to his artificial limbs, therefore giving him an unfair advantage on the track. Is this true? Well, Oscar believed it was nonsense and had his own scientific study done with the help of Dr. Hugh Hare, an associate professor and biophysicist at MIT. Dr. Hare addressed the accusations. Now, remember what I said earlier about getting energy from two sources while running? Those two sources are aerobic and anaerobic. The aerobic pathway is used by muscle cells to break down glucose and burn it chemically to create energy in the form of adenosine triphosphate, ATP. The aerobic pathway is active when you have huge amounts of oxygen available in the muscle cells to help break down sugar. Now, anaerobic energy is created when the muscles are stressed for lack of oxygen. It's a pathway that allows small but significant amounts of ATP to be made under severe stress conditions. The IAF claimed that they could measure both aerobic and anaerobic energy levels. Dr. Hare, on the other hand, says that you can only measure energy produced aerobically. Quote, anaerobic energy cannot be quantified by anyone, not here in the U.S., not in Germany. It simply can't be precisely quantified. Unquote. The IAAF claimed that they could quantify anaerobic energy, and they even put an exact number on it. That is where Oscar's 25% energetic advantage supposedly comes from at 400-meter race speeds. That value of 25% is simply absurd. Hare says the German studies are deeply flawed because you simply cannot quantify levels of anaerobic energy being used at those speeds. He concluded that no one can assess quantitatively whether there is or is not an advantage. Hare also points out that the German method used to determine how much anaerobic energy was being used by Oscar is just plain wrong. They measured the amount of lactate in the blood. Now, lactate is a substance that's produced when your muscles are starved for oxygen but still need to make energy. Lactate actually comes from an alternate energetic fermentation pathway that's similar to that in yeast that makes alcohol for beer and wine. Just not as much fun. Lactate buildup in stressed muscles accounts for your pain after a long run, a workout, or whatever kind of physical stress we're talking about. In the correct circumstances, the more lactate made and in the blood, the more energy was made anaerobically. Unfortunately, most physiologists don't accept that lactate blood measurement as being an accurate representation of anaerobic capacity when measuring a runner at high speed. The metabolic output is too great and too untrustworthy for just such a measurement to be believed. When you're running below a certain critical speed, all the energy produced is from aerobic sources. Well, what Air did was simply take all of his measurements below that critical speed so that the anaerobic measurements never even came into it. Hare found that when the aerobic energy is the only energy source available, 
Oscar and the other world-class athletes with intact legs showed no significant difference in energy consumption. And this makes perfect sense from a practical standpoint. Remember, we're not talking Steve Austin here, where his whole leg was replaced. Oscar's thigh muscles are intact. He uses up lots of aerobic and anaerobically supplied energy to push on those prosthetics. So the other accusation of the IAAF is that Oscar uses less energy than his competitors because his prosthetics spring back and return energy to his thigh stumps, thus reducing the energy needed for him to run. At least according to the IAF, there is little bounce-back energy that comes from a human leg hitting the ground. The IAF calculated that Oscar's ankle springs would give him a, quote, mechanical advantage of the blade in relation to the healthy ankle joint of an able-bodied athlete that is higher than 30%, unquote. Well, Professor Ayer responded to this in two ways. First, he indicated that there's no way to know how much of that returned energy actually went into the muscles and into motion, and how much is just transferred into heat energy and dissipated out of the springs like that. The IAF, on the other hand, insisted that the cheetah prosthetic transferred all the spring energy back into motion, unlike a human leg. But they didn't actually measure this. Additionally, Hare hypothesized that not all of the spring back energy is lost in a human leg. Some of it is transferred to the knee. In our body, we have muscles that span multiple joints. And biomechanics does suggest that one purpose of muscles that actually span multiple joints is so the body can transfer energy across joints. In short, it's entirely unclear that Oscar does have the advantage that the IAAF suggests. Additionally, Oscar may have a serious disadvantage over healthy world-class athletes. One of Dr. Hare's collaborators, Dr. Peter Wayland of Rice University, has found in biophysical studies that really fast people generate very high forces on the ground, and they do this very, very fast. Slow people simply cannot generate those high forces. Oscar's ground forces seem to be slightly lower than an athlete's with legs. That suggests that perhaps he might be force-limited because of his prosthesis, because it's just a spring, and that he cannot generate the high forces an intact human leg can. So, this is obviously more complicated than the IAAF first thought. Okay, now for my editorial. In terms of competition... Just what in the hell was the IAAF thinking? We are going to ban this guy because he is better than someone with two healthy legs. Well then, where will he compete? Against other handicapped runners in the paraplegic Olympics? There is a paraplegic Olympics. We have paraplegic Olympics because we assume that paraplegics are athletes that are not as skilled because they are handicapped. Oscar can kick the collective asses of literally 99.999% of the world's population in a 400-meter run. Does that sound like he's handicapped? What happens when Oscar, or somebody like him, finally breaks the world record? Will they disallow it completely, or simply say that his record was mechanically enhanced, mechanically aided, and put it in the book with an asterisk? 
Oscar may not have an advantage now, as shown by those lab tests, but how long until somebody like him does have an advantage? How far off are we from a Colonel Steve Austin who can kick anybody's unenhanced ass in a race, a javelin throw, or a wrestling match? Then we will have to face up to the fact that you cannot simply ban a person from a sport. You have to give them alternatives. Whether Oscar had an advantage or not, where the IAF went wrong is that they wanted to ban him without giving him alternatives, without giving him someone at least as good as he is to compete against. You have to provide somewhere where everyone can compete. I say create a new World Olympics for this category, not the healthy human Olympics or the paraplegic Olympics or even the special Olympics. Create the new meta-human Olympics. To complicate matters further, in the future, we will not just have cyborgs who want to be treated equally, but presumably there will be genetically enhanced humans who are stronger, faster, etc. from birth. Where will they compete? Well, what do you think? I'm not sure that my idea is all that original, but it seems like it may be the only fair way to do this. Okay, my second cyborg news story will not take as much time up as the first did, since we don't want to cover the same ground. This is more of a tech story. Dr. Andrew Schwartz of the University of Pittsburgh and some of his collaborators at Carnegie Mellon University took a major step in the last few months in getting the brain to interact directly with prosthetic devices. And now this is something that Rudy Wells from The Six Million Dollar Man just kind of glossed over on that in the show 30 years ago. He never actually talked about the interfaces. Even if you look at the way the show was uh, actually filmed, it was never obvious exactly the way you had these prosthetics connected, just that they kind of connected into the brain somewhere. It's actually not all that difficult now to build some very complicated limbs to help people walk and move, but the hardest part of the process is the interface. How do you command those limbs from the brain in an extremely accurate manner? Part of this overarching problem is how to create feedback loops to help control fine motor skills and the proprioceptic phenomenon that our own limbs provide. You are born knowing where your limbs are in space at all times and how they are moving, unless you have some major brain or nerve damage. Now, if you close your eyes and lift your right hand above your head, you still know exactly where your hand is. You can move it with your eyes still closed and pick up a pencil on the table in front of you. This feeling of where your body is located in space is called the proprioceptic sense. Schwartz's work comes one step closer to allowing that type of sense in an artificial limb by the use of heavy computation. Schwartz's group implanted macaque monkeys with electrodes in the motor cortexes of their brains. They then learn to control a robotic arm with their thoughts. They gently restrain the monkey's own arms. They didn't cut off any monkey arms. They let the monkeys keep their arms and just held them down so they couldn't use them. And then they positioned a mechanical arm at the animal's left shoulder like it was a real arm. After practicing for several days, the monkeys appeared to treat the robotic arm as their own and could feed themselves with the arms using quite fluid and rapid motions. This is seriously amazing. It's amazing because it took the monkeys, first of all, it took the monkeys so little time to learn how to use the arms. Other researchers have had little success at this type of experimental work. So what was Schwartz's secret? Well, we're not just talking about the monkey brain being directly connected to the limbs. 
it's more complex than that. If it was just electrical signals being sent from the motor cortex to the arms, it would be months, years, or maybe decades before the monkeys could move those arms at all. No. The electrodes were attached from the monkey brains to a high-speed computer and then to the mechanical arm. As the monkeys tried to move the arms, the computer would associate patterns of electrical activity in that particular brain region with the monkeys craving to reach toward pieces of food placed around them. The computer software then interpreted where the monkeys wanted to reach and whether they wanted to open or close the hands based on the brain activity. The computer would then calculate the specific movements of the robotic arm, shoulder, and elbow joints to perform the task without the monkey having to think about those details. Rapid interpretation of the brain signals by the computer helped the robotic arm to move in a natural manner. The computer could convert the monkey's thoughts into movements of the robotic arm in about 150 milliseconds. That's amazing because it's, it's about the nerve delay seen in a real arm. So when can injured Iraq war vets sign up to get Schwartz's amazing new system? Well, unfortunately, not very soon. As with all new tech, there are major problems that still need to be overcome before human trials can even begin. First of all, Schwartz needed some serious computational power to allow the monkey limbs to be controlled. Amazing as it seems, in this day and age of nano iPods and PSPs, the size of the computers needed to do those calculations is still just too big. Well, they're simply too impractical to be lugged around with an arm or a leg that will be used every day by somebody. Second, those electrodes that I mentioned earlier are not immune system friendly. Within a couple of weeks, the electrodes lost contact with the brain because the immune system attacked them as foreign bodies and pretty much made them useless after a relatively short time. But these are just technical problems. As any scientist will tell you, overcoming technical problems is just a matter of time and patience. Do not expect to see Steve Austin's limbs in the next couple of years, but do not be surprised if you do not see them regularly within the next decade. Not to sound stupidly hopeful, folks, but I can guarantee that will happen. Because the success of work like this is always a matter of how much money you throw at it. And right now, lots of grant money is being thrown at this problem. From where, you ask? Well, in the states where I live, most of the funding for this type of research comes oddly not from the National Institute of Health or the National Science Foundation, but from military sources. So many young soldiers have been crippled in the last few years fighting in the Middle East that it has become imperative to the U.S. military to help all those 20-something amputees. Now, we are talking tens of millions of available dollars to grantees with the right proposals. At first, this may seem amazingly selfless for the military-industrial complex that we in America have, but then the memory of Colonel Steve Austin comes niggling back into your mind, and you wonder cynically whether the multi-star generals are thinking the same thing. Wouldn't a squad of cyborgs, who were faster and stronger, with better eyesight and hearing, be a hell of a lot better than the unenhanced troops we have now? And no, nowhere in the grant application materials does the military actually mention actual military applications for advanced prosthetics. But, well, it is food for thought. I'm finished for the moment. Thanks for listening, 
As usual, take care, and I hope I have inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Jim, that is fantastic. Thank you so much. Along, Jim, along with yours, Amy's and Terry Edge's articles, they are proving so popular amongst the Sophonaut community. Just need a couple more. I would like to get someone, I've mentioned this before, about trying to get someone in the actual real-worldy spacey news, you know, something along them lines. And I have got, listen out to one of the future shows, I have got an idea that will replace the flash fiction Mm, more news to come on that. But it's now over to the main part of the show, the main fiction. It is by none other than Kevin J. Anderson. And like I said before, Kevin J. Anderson's Ashes of the World, the final volume in his epic science fiction series, The Saga of the Seven Sons, just released. Worked on that series for eight years and very satisfied how it came out. Talking to me the other day and he says, imagine that, an author who actually delivers his books on time and writes a long series with a beginning, middle and end. Rather unusual there. The paperback edition of The Last Days of Krypton comes out in August. This is the never-before-told story of the actual politics and tragedies that caused the destruction of Superman's home planet. And apparently it's got a really cool 3D cover using some sort of fancy technique that has actually never been used before in the publishing industry. So check out that when it comes. And finally, he's got a novel with Brian Herbert, Paul of Dune, the direct sequel to the original Dune, comes out in September. Plenty of things going on in Kevin G. Anderson's world. <laughs> So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents Newts by Kevin G. Anderson. During what should have been the Ring Colony's Independence Day celebration, the mood in the family habitat was somber. Rex Holling stared through the viewing window toward the pastel clouds of Saturn. Thanks to the mellowing influence of his implant, he wore a placid smile aware and yet immune to the misery and dread all around him. The others were incapable of being so stable in a time of crisis. Rex admired the planet's gentle beauty. The majestic ring arced and caught sunlight, glittering with a spray of rocks where the tightly knit group of worthies had built habitation modules, storage depots, greenhouse domes. All those artificial structures should have formed the backbone of a carefully engineered society, a magnificent colony. Standing alone, Rex considered the grand aspirations of visionary Ardette Hollings, who had founded the Worthies. Now there were three empty seats at the dinner table. All families had suffered similar losses in the recent space battle. As the emotional currents moved around him, Rex imagined himself as a rock in a fast-flowing stream, as in the library images he liked to view. Images of natural beauty were the only parts of Earth that Ardette had allowed them to see, claiming that everything else was too corrupt. He found the lovely landscape scenes very soothing, the rushing waters, the crashing ocean waves, the silvery waterfalls. Rex had never visited Earth, and he never would, especially not now. Though he could not personally experience extreme moods, 
he still recognized the agitation from his mother and two sisters-in-law. It was like learning a foreign language. Even little Max was affected by the tension. The boy clung fussily to his uncle Rex, who was two years younger than his father. Rex picked up his unsettled nephew, whispering soft words that soothed him. Max stopped crying, giggled once, then played with his uncle's hair. They both looked out the window. See the planet? Isn't it pretty? As a firstborn, Max would never be subjected to the implant or the operation. If Rex hadn't been so calm, he might have envied the little boy. Mother emerged from the kitchen unit, forcing a bright smile. She looked wrung out and pale, overworked, overwhelmed, but not willing to surrender any ground to fate. She would keep doing what she must, regardless of the circumstances. As the wife of Ardette Hollings, she had always been an excellent example for other worthy women to emulate, filling her role, doing her tasks, never overstepping the boundaries. Rex thought she was perfect, even knowing the terrible things that had happened to the colony and what they could expect from the Earth military forces. Her job was to manage their home and keep the family unit intact. Mother would die before she gave up any of those tasks, no matter what outside threat might be coming their way. Today is our special day, so we have a feast. Twenty-one years ago, today, our debt led us away from Earth and brought us here to form our model society. She said the phrases she had memorized. Her husband had written the original Independence Day speech, and the words had become canon. We came here to find peace, despite the hardships we knew we would have to face, and without interference from outsiders. Rex intoned the benediction along with his two sisters-in-law. Peace despite hardship. He handed the now happy toddler back to Anne, tapping Max on the nose and making him giggle one last time before the meal. Mother brought out platters of fresh vegetables grown in the greenhouse domes. At the end of his shift that day, Rex had brought home the best from the harvest, far more than they really needed to eat. There were ears of bright yellow corn, bowls of green beans, leafy salads dressed with spice herb sauces, tofu meat added extra protein. With all greenhouse systems perfectly functional, at last, the productivity in the domes was enough to feed a population beyond even Ardette's greatest dreams. And now that so many colonists had died, there was extra food for the table. Silver linings. Rex smiled at the thought. He served himself sliced tomatoes so red they made the eyes ache. There isn't so much reason to celebrate, grumbled Anne as she took her seat next to one of the empty spots. When Max fussed, she set the toddler on her knees and absently shushed him. Rex offered to take the boy, but Anne shook her head. Mother would not let anything derail her purpose. It is still our Independence Day. We have always celebrated it, and we'll do so again this year. Our men would want it that way. Who knows what'll happen next year, Rex said, meaning to be optimistic. 
He let the events flow toward him and accepted whatever came. He, like so many others of his generation, was kept on an even keel, cooperative, causing no trouble. Ardette had wanted it that way. Instead, his comment stung the others there. Rex could see expressions fall and felt their turbulent anxiety. Grief for lost husbands, fear of the inevitable end of their way of life, anger at the enemy that had robbed the worthies of their future. No matter how brave their deaths had been while standing against the invaders, the men were still dead. I'm sorry for what I said. It was insensitive. That's all right, Rex. You can't help it, Mother said. Dark-eyed Jen, the widow of his brother Ian, took a seat across from Rex, moving as if in a daze. She had full lips, a lush figure, had a once-sparkling personality that had made her an extremely desirable mate. Ian had been the envy of many worthies when she'd accepted his proposal of marriage, and Ardette himself had blessed the union. Rex had been very pleased for both of them, hoping they would have many children. But there hadn't been time. He could sense Jen's sorrow at that now, the suffocating weight of lost opportunities. It all flowed past him. He was a rock in a stream. That was as much as the implant and his altered body allowed him to be. Since Rex was the only man there, Mother asked him to say a brief prayer for Lee and Ian, as well as their father and all of the fallen heroes. Rex mouthed the memorized words in his thin, piping voice. Then they all joined in an uninspired but adequate recitation of our death's traditional Independence Day benediction. When he finished speaking, everyone murmured, as our death said. Giving him a shy smile, Jen served Rex one of the ears of corn, took a smaller one for herself, then passed the plate down to where Anne was struggling with Max while scooping up some beans. Anne had a round face and curly brown hair. When her husband was still alive, she had kept herself beautiful for him, but in the months since Lee had fallen, she had little opportunity to do so, especially with caring for Max. Rex knew that Anne struggled to be strong, to follow Mother's example. Worthy women were groomed to be exceptionally competent in their well-defined areas of responsibility, and to rely on the men to fulfill their own duties. But not even Ardette, with his grand dreams and detailed societal models, had envisioned the possibility of an entire stratum vanishing practically overnight. Anne asked, How soon do you suppose the DPs will be here? She spoke as if it were casual mealtime conversation, though Rex could hear the tension, like brittle glass in her voice. I'll have no such talk at the table. Mother passed the salad bowl around again and urged them to eat. This isn't the time for it. I'm afraid, Jen said in a small voice, looking directly at Rex. He glanced away, knowing what she wanted from him, but unable to give it. He felt so sorry for her. The Democratic progressives had dispatched a retaliatory force to crush them, and everyone knew it was only a matter of time. The worthies had already sacrificed all their fighting men 
against the first small exploratory force that had come to Saturn. Ardette, Lee, Ian, and the other men in worthy settlement had defeated the enemy that day, but at incredible cost to themselves. The remaining colonists would have no chance when Earth's reinforcements arrived at Saturn. For months now, Rex had felt the uneasy panic wafting among the colony survivors, like the wind from a laboring air recycler. But he remained calm. All newts remained calm. Ardette had thought it for the best. After the meal, his belly full, Rex helped out in the kitchen unit, cleaning dishes, recycling scraps. Though worthy men did not do such work, newts were allowed to perform some duties traditionally reserved for women. Besides, Rex had designed or refined some of the household recycling systems himself, and he knew how to keep them functioning at peak efficiency. Jen offered to help him while Anne and Mother played with Max in the main living area. One of Ardette's old recorded speeches played on the screen. Crowds of exuberant new colonists cheered, giddy with their recent separation from Earth, and assured of a bright future if only they followed the rigid, worthy plan. Jen stood uncomfortably close to Rex in the cramped kitchen unit. He used a squeegee to scrape food into a compost recycler and stored the serving plates in the sanitizer, which used water reclaimed from the abundant ice in Saturn's rings. For a while, she made light conversation, though he could hear a deep and desperate huskiness to her voice, a longing and a need. After a long pause, Jen said in a very low whisper, Rex, I ache every time I see you. Do you know how much you remind me of Ian? You look so much like him. I am his brother. We've always looked a lot alike. She slipped her arms around his waist. Face me. He felt awkward, interrupted in his work, but he dutifully turned. He looked at Jen's oval face, her delicate chin. Both of his brother's wives were beautiful women, yet Rex felt no desire for his sister-in-laws. Still, he loved them deeply. Jen must have seen it on his face. He stroked her hair, trying to calm her, as he had done with Max. Growing bolder, she pressed her soft breasts against his chest, then tilted her face. She kissed him, at first tentatively, and then ferociously. Her lips were moist and pleasant, warm, wanting more than he was capable of giving. I miss him so much, Rex. I'm so lonely. We're all lonely. He gently extricated himself patted her on the shoulder as a brother would, and reminded her of what she already knew. I'm not entirely like Ian. I'm missing some of my parts. Though he had not intended to upset her in any way, he experienced her reaction like whitecaps crashing against a sea cliff, another library image from Earth. Rebuffed, Jen backed to the door of the kitchen unit. He could not experience the same reactions, with all the highs and lows of passion clipped from him, but he very much wanted to understand. I'm sorry, he said automatically. 
hoping it would diffuse the tension simmering in her. Don't be angry. Dark hair swirled around her as she tossed her head and looked at him with a flicker of disgust. How can you keep us safe from the DPs? They're coming. You know what they're like. They'll destroy us all. Rex blinked at her, struggling to quell the situation. Yes, he had heard Ardeth's speeches on the evils of Earth, the manic greed and violence of the democratic progressives. Rex, born here in the new colony, had never experienced Earth except through his father's harsh descriptions. But he believed the stories of a lawless society in which no member knew his or her place. After great struggle and persecution, the worthies had broken away from that, coming far enough out here into unclaimed territory that they could achieve their potential, following Ardeth's social map. Rex was part of that. They all were. We all have our task, Jen. I'm a newt. You know that being a fighter or a lover is not one of my duties. He offered her a comforting smile. I can do many things, Jen, just not what you're looking for right now. Rex squared his shoulders as he had seen his brothers do. But if we don't stay the course in our darkest hour, then we dishonor our dead. He gave us our instructions. If we cast them aside now, then we are no better than the people from Earth. It was an intellectual argument, the kind Rex was best at, and he could see that he did not convince Jen's heart. After she left him in a swirl of anger and fear, he went back to finish the kitchen chores by himself. The handful of intact worthy men insisted they would go down fighting for their principles, their way of life. Rex was physically and chemically prevented from feeling the same passionate resolve. But he could admire their determination, their bravery, their refusal to give up. He was sure Ardette Hollings would have been proud. Shortly after their Independence Day, Rex and a dozen newts were removed from their daily assignments and sent out into the space rebel field with Commander Joseph Heron. Heron was old, scarred, and impatient, one of only 23 male survivors of the initial battle against the Democratic progressives. Listening to him rail against fate, Rex wondered if Heron had spent the last several months wishing he too had died in the conflict. But, if he had, who would defend the worthies against the decadent and despicable DPs. From the time he was a child, Rex had been trained how to suit up and how to perform outside functions. He was perfectly capable of performing tasks out in hard vacuum, as were his fellow newts. They were well-educated, even-tempered workers who remained unruffled in a crisis. They would complete their tasks as required, no matter how anxious and uptight Commander Heron and his desperate soldiers might be. Scouts had already combed the space battlefield for any wreckage they could salvage, but Heron insisted on trying again and again. The vagaries of gravity in the rings churned up new discoveries, like repressed emotions coming to the surface. Rex was sure nothing remained to be found, but the commander had nothing to cling to but dogged optimism. 
Rex was surprised and pleased when the searches paid off. Far from where anyone expected gravity and momentum to have carried it, they discovered a nearly intact DC ship. Leaving Heron in charge was yet another example of Ardeth's great wisdom. No newt would have bothered to keep searching. This is our greatest break yet, men, the commander said over the suit intercom as their shuttle approached. Heron allowed only a small touch of irony when he said men. His voice held an edge, as if anger could inspire the newts to greater dedication. But the implants continued to keep them controlled, calm. It was the most reasonable way to get a tough job done. After the worthy's early years of near starvation, Ardet had based much of his plan on that basic idea. Heron named the wreck Flying Dutchman, after an old Earth ghost story. The Dutchman's hull had been breached in several places, venting its atmosphere and killing the small crew. When their shuttle circled the derelict, Rex studied the configuration, making mental notes about what needed to be repaired. Decades ago, when leaving their tainted planet behind, Ardeth's followers had purchased brute force commercial vessels to haul people and equipment on a one-way trip to Saturn. This DC exploratory ship was faster, its lines sleeker, its potential greater than anything the colonists had used. When the shuttle docked against the Dutchman's cold hull, Heron addressed his men and the newts. Inside this wreck, there may be energy weapons, explosive projectiles, something we can use. It's my aim to get this vessel up and running. Then we'll have five ships, and we can make a good accounting of ourselves when the DPs come. Can we even understand the system, sir? Rex asked. This technology far surpasses what we're used to. The older commander turned to him. Behind the reflected glimmer on the curved faceplate, Rex could see his frown. Just because you don't have any balls doesn't mean you don't have any brains. I'm counting on you to figure this out, Rex. It's the only way we can survive. Rex didn't think they would survive in any case, but he made no further comment. The other newts waited to receive instructions. After they broke into the Dutchman, the salvagers separated into teams and methodically moved from deck to deck. They discovered the iron-hard bodies of six DC soldiers, expressions frozen as if surprised that a tiny group of isolationists had fought so bitterly against their impressive ship. Two of Heron's men let out defiant cries of triumph, the others were queasy and silent. The newts were put on corpse detail, gathering and ejecting the dead soldiers. They didn't mind. On the bridge, Commander Heron and his men studied the dead ship systems. Rex stepped up to the engine controls and navigation modules and peered down to read the labels on each station. He knew how to fix familiar systems. Recyclers, irrigators, lighting... But these look different. Don't just stand there and make this place crowded, Heron said. Not much time left. The other newts spread out and began to make repairs. With so many unknown factors, the worthies had no way of determining exactly when the retaliatory ships would arrive. 
After receiving distress signals from the battle in the ring six months ago, Earth should have taken at least a month to gather a new fleet, which would take five or more months in transit. But if the D.C. military had modified their engines, improved their speed or fuel efficiency, they could fly to Saturn more swiftly than expected. By any calculation, the D.P.s could be here any day. Rex used a circuit mapper and command train isolator to check the station panels, one row after another. He documented which modules were functional and which needed to be routed around or replaced. Even if the Dutchmen were completely repaired, though, the new DC ships were bound to be far superior. That first engagement had been unintentional, at least on Earth's part. The Democratic progressives had sent an exploratory force through the solar system, mapping resources, choosing possible locations for new colonies and outposts. It's what so-called progressives do, Ardette had said in a speech to every member of the worthy colony. They spread and exploit and take what they want. We cannot let them steal our homes. We dare not let them disrupt our grand experiment. We must prove the strength of our principles. His voice grew deeper and more powerful. It had been so stirring that Rex found himself moved in spite of the implant. The DPs are barbarians. They will pillage and rape and destroy everything we hold dear. The worthy men had howled, the women had cringed, and the newts had listened carefully. The men gathered every possible ship, cobbled together anything that could be used as a weapon, then set an ambush in the rings to protect their way of life. The D.C. exploratory force had come to Saturn with escort ships and scientific vessels, intending to use the plentiful ice in the rings to replenish their fuel and water supplies. Rex had studied the records of their arrival, and as far as he could tell, the D.P.s had taken no aggressive action. It seemed possible that they hadn't even known about the tiny hidden colony. But fiery-eyed Ardette called it an incursion, a criminal trespass by plunderers. After overcoming birth pains and terrible difficulties, the colony had begun to thrive, exactly according to the design. They wanted nothing to do with the people of Earth. The D.C. scientists and pilots were astonished when the worthy men attacked. Though the D.C. exploratory fleet was not a military force, they had fought back, killing most of the young men and Ardette Hollings himself before being destroyed themselves. Nothing here we can't fix, Commander Heron said, rapping on the arm of the captain's chair. We can get the Dutchman flying again. He looked around the bridge as if expecting the newts to cheer, but they continued their tasks with silent efficiency. He turned to Rex. You, your Ardette's own son, doesn't anything get you riled up? Rex shrugged in his bulky suit. That's not possible, sir. He reset a panel and was gratified to see that all the systems were now functional. But I do my job to the best of my abilities. Is there something inadequate about my performance? Discouraged, the commander let out a long sigh that was audible across the helmet radio. Oh, we won't be able to last five minutes against the forces from Earth. Back at his familiar work in the greenhouse domes, 
Comfortable with the routine, despite the imminent arrival of the DPs, Rex was glad to be doing something worthwhile. There's no more glorious work than providing food for our people, Ardet had said to all greenhouse workers. And since Rex also worked on the illumination and irrigation systems, he felt he was doing even more than his part. It gave him a warm satisfaction to know he fit in so well. Overhead, bright lights and outlying ring fragments moved like fireflies. Some of the women harvesting produce looked up nervously, as if expecting them to be breaking jets from earth ships. Rex saw only lovely lights as bright as diamonds. He hummed a tuneless song to relax himself, though the implant did most of the job. Crews of newts and women picked ripe vegetables and fruits, never letting anything go to waste. The recycled air smelled fresh, moist, mulchy. Overhead, lamps poured out warm, buttery light to nourish the plants. Coming around the gauzy limb of Saturn, the sun also rose, adding its distant light and life. Bees transported from Earth buzzed around the flowers, sexless drones doing their work for the betterment of the hive. Two years ago, encouraged by his father, Rex had improved the hydroponic trays and then the nutrient delivery irrigators in the planted rows. Now he drew a deep breath and sighed as he looked out at the colorful patterns of growth, all the shades of green. Each species was planted in the proper order for optimal food production. Everything in its place, everything productive. Ardet Hollings had been such a genius. Rex ruffled his fingers through the velvety leaves of enhanced strawberries. Ripe and red, they would make a sweet dessert. Perhaps Mother would serve some tonight. She had been more extravagant with her cooking in the past few weeks, as if to reassure everyone that nothing was wrong. As he moved the leaves aside, Rex spotted a darting lizard. The original colonists had brought no large animals with them from Earth, but along with the bees they had released numerous small animals, such as birds, shrews, and tiny lizards. The birds and rodents had died. Only the lizards had survived and thrived, finding an entire ecological niche for themselves. Rex tried to catch it, but he wasn't quick enough. The lizard vanished among the strawberry plants, showing only a flicker of a tail that was a different color, obviously broken off and then regrown. Lizards had that amazing regenerative ability. Rex went back to his work, picking the berries. In the beginning, Worthies had planted only the fastest-growing and highest-energy-density foods, then used reprocessing chemistry to break down even the waste vegetation into edible mass. They'd had nothing else to eat. Because of Ardette's innovative survival measures, that crisis had passed when Rex was just a child, and now the Worthies had the luxury and inclination to plant decorative flowers and ornamental shrubs from stored genetic samples. This place had become a home instead of just a subsistence colony, but it wouldn't last. In their fourth year away from Earth, one of the three primary greenhouses had failed. A piece of rogue stony debris thrown from an impact in the rings had sailed at very high velocity into the armored dome, 
shattering several panes and hemorrhaging atmosphere. Most of the air was gone. The temperature plunged. The greenhouse sent into an unstable wobble. Seven people died, and all the plants perished. One-third of the crops to feed the settlement. Adding to the disaster, a blight had swept through the corn crop in one of the other greenhouses, decimating that harvest as well. On the relatively new colony, their survival had already been hanging by a thread. Most of their preserved supplies were already gone. Devastated by the loss, the worthies watched their perfectly planned future crumble. The workers scrambled to build another greenhouse dome and create subsidiary growing areas. They faced the very real prospect of dying, or returning beaten to repressive earth. Our debt had rallied them. Return is never an option! We have fought too hard to establish a perfect society. I have provided the road map. Do we dare take our children back to that hellhole? How could we betray them in such a way? He had lifted his young son Rex for all his followers to see. Now, when Rex watched the tapes and studied his father's words, he was glad that in his small way he had helped Ardette make his point. We have given our citizens their places, defined their roles, offered them security instead of cultural pandemonium. Men and women fill the niches for which they were bred, without the confusion of too much freedom and too many pressures. It was a famous speech that all students were required to memorize. In the recording, the people were bleak, gaunt, and hollow-eyed, with fear as much as from hunger. After the greenhouse failure, knowing they would barely have enough to eat for the next few years, Ardette had assessed the big picture and repainted his grand social landscape. As worthies, we must watch ourselves. We did not ask for an easy life, nor will we ever have one. Our population must always be carefully controlled. We will grow, and we will triumph. But out here, we must do it in a properly planned fashion. This is not Earth. Peace despite hardship, the crowd had mumbled. Thus, for the time being, we must stabilize our population. We must shore up our society, keep our roles intact, keep our people happy. We cannot have strife, nor can we have uncontrolled breeding. Thus, as a gesture to strengthen all of us in our resolve, we must make sure that no more than two children in each family will reproduce. This announcement had met with dismay. Since worthies had, until now, been encouraged to have large families in order to increase their numbers, the people muttered, Most of us already have more children than that, Ardette. You want us to kill them? Someone had asked from the audience. Watching that interchange over and over, Rex was sure the questioner would have done it if Ardette had asked. Their leader shook his head and gave a broad, paternal smile. Of course not! We love our children! They are the building blocks of a great society, but we must use them with great care to a noble purpose. Ardette had looked at them all with his intense visionary glare. While I am confident we have the strength to survive, this crisis is only an example of our possible tribulations. 
By our own design, we are in a new situation here on Saturn. We came to escape the anarchy and gluttony of Earth. And to do that, we must change ourselves. And that is a good thing, though it will be hard. For this generation, we must take interim measures, difficult measures, but vital ones. After the first two children, our extra sons and daughters will remain important parts of our perfect society, but they will also make the sacrifice so that we can remain strong and stable. He looked at them all. Rex still felt a chill when he recalled the historical tapes. They must be neutered. As an educated adult, when Rex considered the details of the solution, he didn't think the mathematics worked out. Neutering the additional children had not decreased the number of mouths to feed, but, as became clear later, that had only been the first part of Ardeth's brilliant plan. Using the greenhouse accident as a springboard, he had led his people past another watershed, pushed his new society to an entirely new level. Because he was their leader, because his followers would do anything he asked, they had not argued. To show his sincerity, Ardet had won their hearts by offering up his own young son as the first to be castrated. Rex was told again and again what a great thing he was doing. Though being only four years old at the time, he had understood nothing about what was really being taken from him. After a large group of children were neutered and properly raised, girls as well as boys, Ardet had quietly revealed his deeper motivation to create an entire layer of society without aggression, without destructive competitiveness. Newts were cooperative and friendly, productive and completely reliable, if not ambitious, the boys being the most prominently changed. The castration itself was not sufficient for Ardette's purpose, though. With carefully metered implants, the newts remained on an even emotional footing, causing no trouble. Each family was allowed two viable children, and the rest became a new caste, the strong and stable foundation for a great, worthy civilization. Rex had listened to the rationales over and over. He thought it was breathtaking. Now, as Rex and the Newts continued their work in the greenhouse, the women reacted to a signal piped over the dissemination channel. The words were spoken in a crisp voice, with just a tinge of fear. An outpost on the fringe of the outer ring has picked up radio chatter, and long-distance sensors have just discovered the Earth military force on its way. The Democratic progressives will arrive at the rings of Saturn within a week, two at most. Hearing this, Rex missed his brothers more than ever. He had never understood them, but he loved them nonetheless. In their youth, Lee and Ian had fought and wrestled with each other, so full of life. Fairly bursting with energy, they had always exhausted their little brother. They had tried to include Rex in their roughhousing play, but even as a boy he had never enjoyed it, due more to the implant than the actual neutering. What if he had been more like them? As he finished filling his container with strawberries, Rex looked up through the transparent dome. He thought about Jen desperate for him to be something he wasn't, then felt sorry for Anne and her little boy. For their sakes, he tried to imagine himself in a worthy soldier's uniform, 
What if it came down to that? Would he grab a projectile repeater rifle and stand at the habitat doorway with Mother, Anne, and Jen behind him? Snarling, would he point the hot barrel of the weapon toward the oncoming DC invaders, scream like a madman, and blast away one enemy after another? Maybe he would use the weapon as a club if he ran out of ammunition. He would bare his teeth. He would claw at them with his hands. The women would treat Rex as a hero, a savior. Then he would hop aboard the Flying Dutchman and streak off into space, using the ship's weapons to destroy more of the DC attackers. He would make them pay dearly. Rex wiped away the faint sweat that had broken out on his forehead, shaking his head at the strange ideas. The implant struggled to banish the thoughts as fast as they came into his head. None of it felt like something he could do. Something he should do. Rex was a newt, with his specific role to play, just like every worthy. Ardette would have been gravely disappointed to learn his son had even entertained such fantasies. It was not at all what the great leader had designed newts to do. They served another purpose. Rex emptied his container of strawberries and then went to pick soybeans. Even after the women had rushed off, he and four newt companions stood together chatting. Their conversation didn't touch on the approaching Democratic progressives. Rex was confident that everything would work out for the best. The family huddled together in the living quarters for their final hours. Rex held a squirming Max as he stood at the window, but even his uncle's attentions could not calm the boy against the palpable storm of panic. Rex felt the boy's misery and held him close, but they could not help each other. Intellectually, he knew their dire straits, though the implant worked overtime to keep him quiet and anchored. Now he needed it more than ever. With a glance at the pale, wide-eyed faces of his mother, of Anne and Jen, Rex wondered if they envied him his calm. With Max clinging to him, he pondered what it might have been like if he'd had a child of his own, if things had been different. If things had been different, would he have felt the longing to reproduce, the endless ticking of a biological clock? Rex kissed the toddler's cheek, then looked toward the upswept rings, where he could see the glimmers of inbound DC ships. Some families were using telescopes to watch the defensive measures Commander Heron was struggling to implement. Rex saw all he needed to see with his own eyes. Each weapons launch, each explosion was a tiny spark. The Earth forces had come with more than a hundred fully armed military vessels, more than enough to overwhelm any resistance the Worthies could mount. Even so, Heron had taken the Flying Dutchman into battle, the other intact men had few ships, little more than tiny cargo shuttles loaded with explosives. They faced off against the DPs in a brave but hopeless last stand. Fifteen newts had been recruited to man some of the defensive posts, but the worthies did not have enough weapons for them. Rex wondered if his neutered comrades were experiencing any fear in their extreme circumstances. Was this what our debt would have wanted them to do? As they approached, the DC ships issued numerous warnings. They sounded like pleas for the worthies to stand down. 
From listening to the battle chatter, it seemed to Rex that the enemy fired only after Commander Heron had launched his weapons. Once the battle began, however, the DPs quickly obliterated the resistance. The Earth ships were visible now as distinct blips closing in on the isolated colony. There seemed to be as many hospital ships as armed military vessels. Decoys? With their superior forces, why would the DPs expect so many casualties? And if they meant to slaughter the worthies, why bother with medical aid? We do not intend to harm you, said a strangely accented but gentle-sounding voice over the dissemination channel, a female voice in command. That startling fact alone demonstrated to Rex how different these invaders were. They're lying, Anne growled. Now she tried to take Max, but the boy clung to his uncle. Rex soothed him, and Anne withdrew to her terrified pacing. As the DPs passed the outer supply depot, it exploded, booby-trapped with proximity bombs. Flying shrapnel tore open one of the Earth's battleships. Rex knew that the depot had been manned by two newts assigned there by Commander Heron. Tears streaked Jen's lovely face. That one was for Ian, she whispered, her voice cold and bitter. Mother sat grimly in her favorite chair. At least the damn capitalists won't be able to take our supplies. Cease your resistance. The female commander's voice sounded sterner now. We cannot allow you to threaten peaceful ships. After you are disarmed, you will be given an opportunity to explain yourselves and air any grievances in world courts. But we must protect ourselves. Then stay away, Jen shouted. Her once luxuriant dark brown hair was stringy. Her eyes grew red as she kept crying. Rex was sure his brother would have still found her beautiful. When the ships surrounded the habitation complex, there were no more flashes, no more desperate attempts to block them. The crackling, accented voice continued. Please, stand down. We do not wish to hurt anyone else. We will not harm you. You have our word. Jen moaned from the other side of the room. They're going to kill us all. They'll drag us back to Earth and make us slaves. Ardette had painted that picture many times and convinced his followers what monsters the DP were. Rex couldn't let himself believe that his father might have distorted the truth, exaggerated the threat. Little Max continued to squirm, and Rex set him down. It's already over. Anne glared at him. Don't you even care? Don't you realize what they'll do to us? Reaching an impossible decision, Mother disappeared into the sleeping quarters, then returned holding a heavy pulse rifle, both Anne and Jen saw the weapon and cringed. Even Rex could barely cope with his surprise. Ardet Hollings had wanted a peaceful society. He had reconfigured the human structure to guarantee there would be no conflict, only order and productivity. By using his followers as human building materials, by creating the unshakable and diligent newts to be the backbone of a strong and satisfying life, he had intended to make such weaponry unnecessary. The pulse rifle had no purpose other than to shed blood. Mother, we can't do that. It's forbidden, Anne said, though her voice held a rough hunger. Rex could see the raw conflict in her mind. The men are our defenders, Jen said. 
All our men are dead, Mother said. We have no choice. We have to defend ourselves. She lifted the weapon, and it was obvious she already knew how to use it. Rex wondered where she had gotten the practice, why she had ever considered it necessary. Unless Rex will do it. She held the pulse rifle forward, and Rex found that he was unable to move. I can't. I'm a newt. Our father made it so. Do you believe in our dad's teachings? Do you truly trust his words? He shied away from the weapon, shaking his head. The implant, the operation. Our father forced me not to be a man. How can you demand it of me now? Because times demand it. Mother's eyes were sharp and hard. You know what you have to do. She placed the rifle in his hands. It felt cold and heavy. He stared at the firing controls. The DC ships clustered around the colony domes and locked themselves down. Rex's family members all jumped upon hearing a loud thump as the invaders forced open the access locks. They're coming, Anne said. Rex stood with the rifle like a dead weight in his arms. Yes, he did believe what Ardette had told them. He had listened to all the speeches, enough to memorize most of them. He knew what the worthy stood for. He accepted everything Ardette had claimed, though the actions of the DC invaders were not what he had expected. The implant helped him to consider his thoughts, to see them objectively, without the disturbing backwaters and eddies of unruly emotions. He had no testosterone-induced distractions, no aggression, no wild mating drive. In this impossible situation, only the newts among the worthies could remain solid and true to Ardette's principles. Yes, he believed. He knew what his father would have wanted of him. Ardette had made it plain in his teachings, in his speeches, in his actions. How else could Rex accept what had been done to him? Mother looked at her only remaining son, her face full of emptiness. Jen and Anne stared at him, perhaps seeing echoes of his brothers. The female DC spokesman broadcast another message. You will not be harmed. You will be taken care of. If some of you wish to come back to Earth, we will arrange safe passage. Don't believe them, Jen cried. They're barbarians. Heavy footsteps came down the halls. Rex stood like a rock in a fast-moving stream, feeling the weight of great events all around him. He was a worthy, a vital component of Ardette's vision. He had his role. He was a newt. He believed in what they stood for. The pulse rifle in his hands was armed. The DPs were coming closer. He set the weapon aside. Behind him, someone groaned in fear or disappointment. Mother, perhaps? If he truly believed in his father's plan, then he had to accept what he was and what he was supposed to do. Newts were made to be teachers, listeners, faithful workers, a stable class without violent tendencies. If Ardette had wanted his son and all those like him to be heroes, he would never have cut them off at the knees. Rex didn't need the implant to tell him that this was for the best. 
As the D.C. consolidation parties moved toward the family habitat, Rex faced them. He experienced no despair or panic, neither relation nor fear, just an unending sense of calm. And there you go. Thank you, Kevin G. Anderson. We are so appreciated over here at the sofa for allowing us the narration of that story. Please check out Kevin J. Anderson's site. Links on my site. Don't forget, copyright is Kevin J. Anderson's. No going out there and trying to selly selly. <laughs> Jim, again, you've got children. How can you be doing all this work? Thank you so much. Please pop over and check out Jim's site as well. Jim, you're just helping this so far along fine and dandy. Thank you very much, sir. So that is another week's instalment of the Starship Sofa Oral Delights. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please drop us emails. If you, you know, tell us where you listen to it. Tell us what's up in your life. Tell us if you're agreeing with what I'm doing. Anything. Lovely to get emails. Keeps me as if I'm just talking to four walls and just putting this show together for just myself. Don't forget, if you would be kind enough to drop a donation, honestly, it would mean so much to me. It just helps kind of keep this thing going and making sure it's our we are flying in the in the black. I was going to say in the bloody red there. So yes, please do that for me. Links on the site. If you sign up for the monthly donations, you will be put over and subjected to the Starship Sanatorium private feed, members only. £2.50 a month for that. That is coming soon. Like I say in a couple of shows, I will be sprinkling them throughout August, July. Actually, July is running out. But I've got some recorded. And, you know, throughout July and August, they will be sprinkled in. And then that feed will be going private. And if you want to go over, sign up. That will be much appreciated. Can you Now can you hear my dogs in the background up fighting on? Kids first, now dogs so don't forget the Tony C. Smith audiobook jumping into possibilities is in the shop as well, $4.99. I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a valuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.